it is clear that Paul didn't have an easy life and endured many trials for the sake of his gospel and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And one of those trials was to face times when he was in prison. And uh, twice Paul was imprisoned in Rome and the second time would lead to his execution. But during his first imprisonment in Rome around 60 AD, Paul had a certain amount of liberty in that he was able to live in his own rented house. And it was there that he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. And it is remarkable that Paul, who had persecuted the church of Jesus Christ for years, was now a prisoner for preaching the gospel of the Savior that he had previously rejected and whose followers he had tried to destroy. And even more amazing is the fact that now Paul says of this Savior, he is my life. He is everything to me. You know, Paul was a free man in Christ, even though he was in earthly chains and the Lord had saved him and freed him from the law of sin and death. So even in his circumstances, there is still this note of great joy and he exhorts the believers in Philippi, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. And this church of Philippi had a special place in his heart. It had been established through Paul's ministry on his second missionary journey. And it had begun with Lydia's conversion and the Philippian jailer and his family. And so throughout the letter, you get these sort of reminiscences and memories, great affection and gratitude. And he is so thankful for the way that the believers at Philippi had seen his physical and his temporal needs and sought to meet them and uh, sought to bear with him and to come alongside him in the hour of his need. And it was all the more incredible because the church at Philippi actually had very few resources. They were what would be termed in the world's eyes a very poor church. They didn't have much means. But Paul sees their heart, and he sees their love for him, their love for the gospel, their love for the Lord. And in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 1, he speaks of his joining the Lord and his understanding that even this time in prison is subservient to his salvation through the prayers of the believers at Philippi and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so he's trusting that even this situation which seems so limited and, and difficult, this great trial, that even this would work together for good so that Christ would be magnified, whether that be in his life or even in his death. And that all leads into this stunning statement with great confidence and simplicity when he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, some of you will be aware that the little word is has been added in to make up the sentence be because in fact, what Paul is saying is this, you know, when I, when I look to the future, when I look to over the past and look to the present and think about why I'm here, what is my life all about, for me to live, and you can imagine him pausing with pen hovering, for me to live Christ, to die gain. And really, I want us to consider what is Paul actually saying here, because I would say to you, that it's what we need today and every day as we look to the future as individuals, as families, as a church. This is to be the aim. 
It's not just one of those nice texts that we might pin up somewhere or you know, put on the fridge or whatever. It is something for us to live, to experience in good times and in bad times for me to live Christ, to die gain. And they are inseparable because, well, you know, to live is Christ. And if that is the case, dying really will be gain because we will be with him forever. So very simply, we're going to look at these two things, how Christ can be our life, and then what does it mean for dying to be gain? So let's ask the question, how is it, how Christ can be our life? What does it mean to say to live is Christ? Well, a number of things to draw out for you. The first thing is this, that we are united to Christ. We are united to Christ if we are believers tonight. When Christ is our life, we are especially linked to him. We are, you know, united to him in a very vital way. So important to understand that. We must be in Christ by faith. We must have a a living, saving relationship with him. You know, it's not enough just to know about him. It is to know him. It's a popular thing today, isn't it, to talk about connecting with people, you know, making connections. But when you're trusting Christ, when you're in Christ, when your life is Christ, you are connected with him in a way that is unlike any other relationship. Now, that had not always been the case for Paul. You know, I've alluded it to it already. Originally, he was a Pharisee. He hated Christ. He hated everyone connected with the Savior. Before he was converted, for Paul to live was Moses. You know, for Paul to live was the law, and he was zealous about securing his own righteousness. You know, he was totally dedicated and he delighted in legalism. He believed that he could earn his own favor with God, or so he thought. But on that road to Damascus, everything changed. Everything was turned upside down, confronted with the risen Jesus in that marvelous splendor and light. He fell to his knees, trembling and conquered by the law. And eventually he was brought to Damascus and for three days he couldn't see, didn't eat or drink. He could only pray. And there in the street called Straight, the Holy Spirit showed him who he really was in the mirror of God's holy law. He'd never encountered that before. He'd always uh, approached the law thinking that he could fulfill it and earn his own righteousness. But now he saw that he was a sinner. And that all his religious efforts had not changed that. You know, he was brought to see that he was a a stranger to God, that he was a a stranger to grace, that he was a, a lost sinner before a holy God. And his uncircumcised heart was humbled. And so Paul accepted that conviction, that punishment of his iniquity. But it was also there that the Holy Spirit led him to Jesus Christ. You know, we hear something of this testimony in Galatians 1. He says, It pleased God who called me through his grace to reveal his Son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so he was brought into a a saving union with Jesus Christ, a real relationship with the Savior. And he came to love him, to love Christ. And in Christ, he was filled with that peace that past his understanding, Christ became everything to him. You know, and from that point, he was determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, in Acts 9.20, we're told that not long after he was converted, he went into the synagogues preaching that Jesus was the Son of God. 
And from that moment on, as he told the Philippians, what was previously gained to him, he counted loss for Christ. In fact, he counted all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he speaks, doesn't he, that I might win Christ, that I might be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. You know, that's the way to live. United with him. Christ, our life, our righteousness, our foundation. And without him, we have nothing. You know, ask that question, what is your life? Fill the blanks in for yourself. No one else but for yourself. Think for a moment. For me to live is what? What would you say right now? You know, the way that you are living, who you are, is Christ your life? Or is it for me to live is work? For me to live is popularity. For me to live is money. For me to live is family or partner or reputation or even self. You fill in the blank. Who or what is the highest point in your life? What is your life? Do you wholeheartedly embrace the truth that this is life and life eternal to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent? You know, let me ask you, could you live without Jesus? You know, for a week, a month, a year? Or are you united to him in that vital living way? You know, that is Christ. To live is Christ, to be united to him. And really it follows then that we only have life in Christ. You know, when Christ is our life, we are united to him and we have life in him. We are united with him in terms of finding forgiveness. But Paul looks beyond that to life every day. And he says, the aim of my daily life is Jesus. He is speaking of sanctification. He wants to know Christ better. In his person, in his nature, in his offices, better in communion with him every day. Day by day, Christ, my prophet to teach the way, my sacrificial interceding high priest, my ruling and guiding king, the aim of my life is to know him and to walk with him, and to commune with him. I wonder if you have the attitude that to not have contact with Christ in a day is a sad day. But if I have union with him, and communion out of that union, through his word, the means of grace, the pursuit of spiritual things, I rejoice. It's a genuine relationship. You know, sometimes I think that we can sort of be detached. We, we talk about these things, and we know of them. But it's the reality of them, the relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, for Paul, everything outside of Christ is death because true life is only found in him. Therefore, sin means death. And so sin and Christ are directly opposed. And that's why Paul wants to kill sin. And remaining sin is a sorrow for him. He knows that to pursue sin is to go away from Christ. And so let me ask you, what about you tonight? Do you really understand the emptiness of life outside of Christ? Do you see death in all that is not Christ? You know, as you look back, what is it that you have really valued in these last few months? Are you growing in Christ? Are you communing with him? What are the other things if you have not known that closeness with him? You know, empty at best and condemning at worst. Christ is everything. Life in him 
You know, to truly live is to live in Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. And so, united to him, living in him. And also, another aspect of living for Christ is that we, we love him. We have love for the Lord Jesus. True believers are not impartial or apathetic about the Lord Jesus. We love him. You know, we looked a number of weeks ago when Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 3, he longed that they would know the love of Christ in all its depth and height and breadth, asserting that it passes all understanding. You know, to the Corinthians, he writes that the love of Christ constrained him to preach the gospel. The love of Jesus was the, the motivating factor in his life. It's why he did what he did. It filled his heart. It filled his life. It directed his mouth, his, his actions. He was full of Christ. You know, Luther wrote, Paul could not keep Christ out of his pen because the Holy Spirit kept Christ in his heart. And so for Paul, all matters, large and small, led to Christ because Christ is everything. And so in his ministry, he determined, as we said, to know nothing amongst them but Jesus Christ and him crucified. When he wrote to the Colossians, he said, Christ is all and in all. You know, that's the right emphasis. Everything that we believe, everything we have, everything that we are as believers is in relationship to the Savior. He is the center. He is our theme, or he should be. And even in the, the practical areas of life, even in the mundane things and the problems, always back to the Savior. You know, if you read through and you see the way in which Paul dealt with some of the issues that arose, you see this. So, you know, are there divisions in the church at Corinth? What does Paul write? He says, is Christ divided? You know, was Paul crucified for you? In other words, Christ is central. You know, if there's immorality in the church, again, 1 Corinthians 5, he points them back to the Lord Jesus. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. So Christ crucified, brought into view again and again, having that impact upon us day by day. You know, what about living in the home? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Always back to Christ. You could go on. Every aspect of life, every relationship, everything practical, everything spiritual, Paul takes us back to Christ. You know, when he tells us to forgive one another, what does he say? He reminds us of Christ who forgave us. When he exhorts us to be generous in giving, he reminds us of Christ who gave everything for us. When he says that as believers we should be humble, what does he say? Put on the mind of Christ. When he tells us to pursue holiness each day, it's on the basis that we are crucified and risen with Christ. Christ is the answer to every human problem. You know, to the lost or to the saved, it's all Christ. And Paul says he must be the focus of all I preach, the sum and substance of my ministry, because for me to live is Christ, and I love him. That's what he says. I ask myself, and I ask you, do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you love him? You know, we all feel that we come up short, especially when we compare ourselves to, you know, someone like Paul. But do we love the Savior? Can we 
Say with Peter, I know I don't love you as I should, but you know all things, Lord, and you know I love you. You see, to live is Christ, and part of that is to love him. And then also it's to have likeness to Christ. You know, if we really love someone, we start to become more like that person. You know, when a relationship is strong over the years, there is such a closeness. And I can think of, you know, some elderly Christian couples who, who demonstrate such a love for each other even after all the years. You know, I can think of those that were in the church where I grew up and used to look and see the way in which they still loved each other and cared for each other. And, you know, they think together, speak together, walk together, talk together, pray together, read together. They just love each other. And in a measure, they become like each other. But much more, when a believer is close to Christ, they become more like him. You know, there's a, there's a savor of Christ that comes from that person. You know, the fruits of the, uh, the Spirit are really the, the fruits of Christ. Love, joy, peace, humility, temperance, all those fruits listed in Galatians 5, really they are just a, a description of the Lord Jesus. And so the believer begins to exercise these graces more and more. We become more like Christ so that in that great day we can be fully like him when we enter into glory and see him as he is. Perfectly like him on that day. We can't fathom that, can we? But we know that it will happen. And you say, well, well, what does it look like to become like the Lord Jesus? What does it look like? Well, it develops in us a servant's heart. When we're like the Lord Jesus, we don't think of ourselves and what we want and what we like and what we wish for, but we think in terms of God and of his people. We think in terms of the, the corporate element, the body, in terms of, you know, the, the family of God's people and living a life of service to others in the name of Christ. We have a servant heart, not a selfish heart. We have a loving heart. You know, the Lord Jesus, he had such a loving heart. His heart was for people from the youngest to the oldest. He embraced those that the world despised. Nothing held him back from loving people. And to be like him is to love as he loved. And it's to have a humble heart, a servant's heart, a loving heart, and a, a humble heart. You know, the Lord Jesus was so gracious, so humble. The more like Christ we are, the more genuinely humble we will be. You know, there won't be room for pride. We will esteem others. And so when Paul says that for him to live is Christ, it draws together all these things, being united with Christ, realizing that all life is in Christ, to love Christ, to be made like Christ, everything flowing from him, from knowing Christ, knowing his love to us. There's no other way to live than to be in the Savior. You know, and the way that this impacts people's lives, it totally transforms them. You know, there's a man called John Payton. He went to the New Hebrides in the late 1850s on the island of Tannen, and he was beset by great difficulties. Cannibals there had never heard the gospel, and his wife tragically died after childbirth, and his little boy died as well. And Payton buried his wife and his child, and then he had to sit on the grave to prevent the cannibals from digging up their bodies and eating them. And he was left alone. And then his house was burnt down by one of the cannibals. He lost everything. He had 
absolutely nothing. And he spent the night hiding in a tree and trying to sleep in that tree. And you say, well, what type of life is that? He recorded that in the middle of the night as he sat in that tree, the words were as clear to him as if they were written across the sky in large letters of gold. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And Peyton said, for me to live Christ, to die gain. You know, living, true living, is only in Jesus. And if we live in that manner, if we know Christ, if we live in that manner, then death is gain. And so that's the second question. How is death gain? Why does Paul tie death to life? And the reality is because they belong together. You know, the first question of one of the old catechisms, the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is your only comfort in life and death? You know, the world and our fallen hearts, they want to try and separate those things. You know, we want to live as we please. We want to live for ourselves. We don't want to worry about death. You don't want to isolate it and, and set it aside. But Paul says it can't be done. And so because he lives in Christ, he will die in Christ, and that will be absolute gain. And that's an incredible thing to say. You know, by nature, death is a terrible thing. It's a terrible loss. You know, we have to leave our loved ones. That's tragic. What a loss to, to leave them and to leave our relationships behind, all our things behind, everything acquired and enjoyed. You know, and that's why we send sympathy cards, isn't it, when people suffer loss. But Paul says, no. For me, death is not loss, but gain. And it's not loss for the people of God. For me to live is Christ, and therefore death is gain, for we both live and die in the Lord. But how do we understand that? Well, let's think about it for a moment. You know, what does Paul leave behind in this whole matter of gain? Well, he'll leave behind his beloved brethren in the Lord. He will leave communion with the people of God. He must leave his beloved son, Timothy. He leaves his brother and friend, Silas. He leaves all that is on the earth behind. Not easy, especially for those who remain. And yet he still says gain. Why? Because he also leaves behind the body of sin and death. He leaves behind the frustration and the weariness of constant battle with sin and the flesh, all left behind at death. He leaves behind a life of temptation, an accusing enemy, an enticing world, no more problems with the lust of the eye or the lust of the flesh or the pride of life. He leaves behind that troubling thorn in his flesh, no more unanswered prayers, no more perplexity. He leaves behind a, a life of labor and sorrow and affliction and disappointment, a life where he had been beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and lost at sea, a life where many had opposed his ministry, where brethren had let him down, where false teachers had slandered him. All the weariness and the pain and the hunger and the thirst and the imprisonment and the persecution, all the tears, all the agony, all the stress, He'll leave it all behind. And my dear friend, if you're a believer tonight, death shall be gained for you as well. And you too will leave all these things, sin and hardships and temptation. It's a wonderful prospect. 
No more sin, no more Satan, no more worldliness, no more old natures. All evil walled out, all good walled in. No more tears, no more pain, no more night, no more death, no more curse. For us to die is gain because of what we leave behind. And it's gain because what we receive is wonderful too. You know, one commentator lists a number of the benefits that the believer receives in death. Let me just bring some of them to you. Dying brings us into communion with the sufferings of Christ. You know, though our death has no atoning purpose, it reminds us of how Christ died for us on the cross and shed his own blood to deliver us from the sting and the the condemnation of death. And so it brings us, it connects us more deeply with him. Even in the very act of death, as it were, the reality of death, we are brought closer to the Savior. Dying also brings a unique experience of Christ's all-sufficient grace. You know, death itself can be very difficult and painful, something which brings fear. But Christ has promised to be with you, and he will help you even at the very end. You know, if you're concerned about those things, if sometimes you think, well, what will happen then? He will not abandon you. He will be there with you, even in that moment. And dying brings our last opportunity to witness for the glory of Christ. You know, the deathbed is the believer's pulpit, some have said. You know, it may be our our greatest test of faith, but it also gives us the opportunity to bear witness that Christ really is enough. And that actually in the the, the horror and the face of death, that Christ is there. And the Lord has saved many through the testimony of a dying saint. And dying brings us into the presence of the Lord Jesus. And really that is everything. You know, you'll be with him. You'll be in his presence. You know, everything that you could hope for. This is truly heaven's heaven to be with Christ and, you know, to be his bride, to be in perfect communion with him to enjoy knowing him and seeing him and loving him and praising him uninterruptedly. What a future awaits the people of God for me to die is gain because I will be with him. And I wonder if you have that anticipation, you know, and you think of of what it will be, will be brought into perfect eternal life with Christ. You know, we know that when a person is saved, that that eternal life begins here on earth. You know, they have that life everlasting, but it shall be perfected in that time to come. And we will know that fullness of life like never before. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. So that eternal life perfected in us, you know, and will be granted perfect knowledge of Christ. You know, we know Christ here on earth, but in death, that knowledge will be perfected. You think of that statement in the scriptures, you know, now I see through a glass darkly, but then I will see face to face. Here I know in part, but there I will know as I am known. You know, we will be initiated into all those glorious holy activities. You know, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect and we will do all things well as the spirits of just men made perfect. And you say, well, like what? Well, we will worship God perfectly. 
We will sing the song of the Lamb. Revelation 15. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. We will serve God perfectly. We will reign with Christ. We will have perfect fellowship with other saints in glory and so much more. And we will be welcomed to our eternal perfect home. We will enter into perfect mansions shining with the perfect light of our perfect God, the home of God and his people. The new heavens, the new earth. We will perpetually feast with him at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. And we will be brought into perfect communion with the triune God in Christ. We will have more intimate communion with Christ than we have known in all of our highest peaks of spiritual joy on earth. We'll have a, a clearer vision of the glory of Christ than all of our most lucid insights here. We will forever bask in his smile and bathe in his glory. Do you know, I love the words of that hymn, Sweet is the Work, My God, My King. And it takes us from worship in this earthly realm to the great worship to come. And the verse which says, Sin, my worst enemy before, shall vex my eyes and ears no more. My inward foes shall all be slain, nor Satan break my peace again. Then shall I see and hear and know all I desired and wished below and every power find sweet employ in that eternal world of joy. Death does more for us believers than anything this earthly life can do. Death is gain because it brings me to Jesus. Death is gain because it brings more of Christ to Paul, more of Paul to Christ. The whole Christ comes no more through that dark glass. Every believer will be brought to Christ in heaven to be with him forever. But you know, if Christ is not your life, then death is not gain. Your death is tragedy. Your death means eternal condemnation and hell, horror beyond what we can fathom. And so I ask you tonight, what of you? Where are you tonight? Only if your life is Christ will death be gain in him. And so do you know him? Are you trusting him? You know, are you living for him? Are you resting only in him? And you see, Paul was. He had a certain hope, you know, and he had this dilemma. He wants to remain for certain reasons, but he also wants to depart and be with Christ. William Hendrickson brings these great contrasts. You know, here we've got a temporary residence. There a permanent home. Here suffering mixed with joy. There joy unmixed with suffering. Here suffering for a while. There joy forever. Here absent from the Lord there at home with the Lord. To die in the Lord is great gain. And so the question is, are you ready to die? May I ask you that this night? Are you really living so that you are ready for that which is to come? If you're living in Christ, you're ready. Your house is set in order. If you're not living in Christ, you're not ready. And friend, you must be ready. You must be born again. There is no other way. You know, there was an Italian man named Galatius who was converted at the time of the Reformation. And he had to give up all of his estates in Italy. And he had to 
flee to Geneva. And his loss was so considerable in sort of worldly terms and so considerable to the church of Rome that they contacted him and offered him free passage, restoration of all of his estates if he gave up his new family, reformed faith and trust in Christ. Well, there was an offer. What did he write? He wrote back this. Let their money perish with them who esteem all the gold in this world worthy to be compared with one hour's communion with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. In other words, one hour with Christ is better than a lifetime with this world. You know, as much as the believer has a wonderful hope for the future, without Christ you don't have any hope. You will not be part of this stunning glory, but you will face this dreadful eternity and sighing and sorrow and pain and devastation and condemnation. And some of you here tonight, you're not ready. You're not ready to die. You're clinging to the empty things of this world. For some of you, to live is not Christ. It's relationships or possessions or wealth or even legalism. Whatever it is, but it's not Christ and it won't save you. So you're not ready. And so there's a great urgency. It is only in Christ for me to live as Christ and then, and then alone is dying gain. You know, one of the Puritans wrote, build your nest in no tree here for God has sold the forest to death. God in his mercy, my dear friend, has given you the opportunity to hear these things this night that you will wake up and repent and seek the Lord and believe in the Christ who saves to the uttermost those who call on his name. And if you do, and if you live in Christ and die in Christ, what a glorious prospect. Our aim is not the grave, it's the sky. Our aim is to be with Jesus. And believer, that is your destination. And the one who has saved you, he will keep you. And in the meantime, we're to live for him, all for him. He deserves it, to be united with him, to live as him, to love him, to be like him, and one day to be with him. What a prospect. Amen.